Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. The West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence is located at 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Anytime you're in the Huntsville area, we hope you'll stop in and be part of our worship. Sunday morning worship is at 9 o'clock, with Bible class immediately following. Sunday evening worship is at 5. Midweek Bible study is held Wednesdays at 7. Very pleasant. Good evening to all of you. We're glad you're here to study the 8th chapter of the book of Romans. Great content. I hope we can wade through it. Last week we did not finish the 7th chapter. I'm going back and touch on a few verses there, but then we'll be in the 8th most of the time tonight. And I have a PowerPoint here of one little slide that needs to come up just any time it can. There you go. I can't read it. I hope you can. Yeah, you can read that. I hope. Down in the lower right-hand corner, you'll see the word socks. If you can read that, you can read Greek. We're going to talk about socks a little bit as we go through here, but I had to put it up there so you can see what it is. That is the word in Greek transliterated. That means the S is a sigma. A is alpha. R is rho. The X is xi. We're going to begin to review the sixth chapter of Romans, which speaks of conversion to Christ. I have a purpose in doing this because the seventh chapter is very different. We struggled in that last week, and maybe it'll come more clearly to us now. Brother Demar Elam taught the sixth chapter of Romans, and I'm sure he did a great job. Many of you have said he did. But I just want to read some things to bring to your mind what he did teach. Romans 6, 1, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. Certainly not. Meganoito. I'll say that several times tonight. That means, and I'm sure you know it by now, it means that may that not be hatched. It is impossible for that to be hatched, to be born. It is impossible for that to come to existence. It cannot be. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? No way. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that in many of us that were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Notice verse 5. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man that was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin, for he who has died has been freed from sin. That sounds like it contradicts the passage we read last week in verse 7. We uh, should no longer be slaves of sin. Romans 6.15, beginning, what shall we say then? Shall we sin because we're not under law, but under grace? Certainly not. Meganoto again. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves servants to obey, you are that one slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered, being set free from sin, having been set free from sin, 
you became slaves of righteousness. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. And again, there's a portion of chapter 7 that sounds like a Christian can't do that. Well, that's not true. We can do that. We'll talk about that just a little later. Now let's go into uh, into uh, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 8, and then we're going to detour back into chapter 7. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh. That word is sarx, S-A-R-X. The word carnal is sarx. Flesh is sarx. It means more than one thing. But according to spirit, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Notice what he said. The law. He talks about according to the flesh, that's a law. According to the spirit, that's a law. Because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from that other law. Law of sin and death. Now let's jump back here to Romans 7. Just a minute where we didn't finish. For we know that law is spiritual and I am carnal. Sarx is a root word there. Sold under sin. Doesn't sound like anything we just read, does it? Verse 17. But now it is no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells in me. Paul, what are you talking about? You're not committing sin, but sin is committing you. Mm, Not so. We should and we can control our bodies. Romans 6, 12. Jump back to that chapter. Demar taught. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. And you should obey it in its lust. Conflict? Sounds so. Romans 7, 18. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me. But how to perform what is good, I do not find. I cannot find perfection in the law. Verse 20. Now if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Strange, isn't it? Verse 23. But now I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind. Two, two laws here, bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, the law of sin which is in my members. Now verse, uh, chapter seven, some have said it's a parenthetical chapter. Paul is using the first person, I, my, and so forth. Speaking probably though of the plight of the Jews in this transition period that are halfway accepting the law of Christ, which you can't do, and holding on to the law of Moses. Cannot be done. He himself, Paul himself, was not enslaved to sin. It is true that under the law, he committed sin and had no way of getting forgiven of that sin except on the Day of Atonement, and then his sins were not gone. They were just moved from him. But they were still in existence. And I think we pointed out last week that uh, Paul had made a statement 
uh, to the uh, Jews in Pentecost that he is, has been arrested by the Romans and by the Jews. He said, I have lived in all good conscience up to this day. That's when the high priest commanded he be smitten on the mouth, you remember. But Paul was not an evil person so far as the Jewish law was concerned. As far as everybody that could observe him was concerned, he was pretty evil, of course, when he cast his lot for uh, the murder of Christians. And he did that more than Stephen. He did that for others. But he was not what we would call an ungodly person outside of that. He was a man who lived inside the law, but he was not a perfect man. And he was condemned by the law that he tried to serve. Every person under the law of Moses was condemned by that law. Because you had only to commit one sin to be condemned by Moses' law. And this is what we're talking about tonight. This is good. This is the reason we're glad to be Christians. Now look at verse 3 of chapter 8. For for what the law could not do, that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. That word is sarks on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Folks, Paul is discussing two laws here. The law according to the flesh, law of Moses. The law according to the Spirit, the law of Christ. And he said, Jesus Christ came, condemned sin in the flesh. He condemned the fleshly law. That the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. There's a passage, I think I've referred to this before, but I have to do it again because if you've heard it, don't be bored because there's some in the class who have not. Second Corinthians 5.21, I think we've messed that passage up a great deal. Paul said, he made him, that is Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. I've heard so many preachers say, the greatest sinner that's ever lived is Jesus Christ. I do not believe that. Even when they explain what they mean, I do not believe that. And here's what they mean, that he took on himself my sins and your sins and everybody else's sins, so he was the biggest sinner. That doesn't fit. In the Hebrew text, we read about burnt offerings, guilt offerings, sin offerings, But when you see sin offering, that's kind of different than burnt offerings and guilt offerings. Because in the burnt offerings and guilt offerings, free will offerings, the word offering appears. But sin offering has no offering after it. The sin offering was just called sin. And that word, incidentally, kata'ah, if you want to know the Hebrew, kata'ah. It's translated sin and sin offering, depending on the context. Again, I know of no place in the Old Testament where an offering was made for sin, where it was called 
in the, in the Hebrew, two words, sin offering. It was not. It was called sin. And even though Paul is speaking here in Aramaic, probably I translated into Greek, and uh, he might have been writing in Greek. I don't know. I wasn't there. <clears throat> but I think he may be doing a takeoff of the Hebrew here when he said, he who knew no sin, he made him to be sin for us, to be a sin offering for us. Now, the Greek doesn't do what I just told you, but the Hebrew does. And Paul was deeply steeped in the Aramaic or Hebrew language. And I think he used the word sin here by itself when he meant sin offering. And that makes a whole lot of sense. He made him, he did take his sins upon him, but they were not his sins. He bore our sins as the poor scapegoat bore the sins of the people in the Old Testament. But they were not his sins. They were not sins he had committed. So he who knew no sin, he came to be a sin offering for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. I won't charge you anything extra for that. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Now, when we think of a person living according to the flesh, what do we think of? Well, he's a drunk, he's an adulterer, he's a thief, he, you name it. He's just of the flesh. I doubt that Paul is talking about that here. I think he means those who live according to the law. They follow those things in the law, and those things are of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, that's another law, the things of the Spirit. I believe he's dealing with the period here that's called a transition period, A.D. 30, birth of the church, A.D. 70, death of the temple. He's in that time period. God nailed the law to the cross. But he also recognized that people kept on keeping the law. And even in Jerusalem, there were many Christians, read chapter 21, it'll scare you to death, who still had a great fondness for the law and believed it was a part of their salvation. Paul is dealing with that here. Those who live according to the flesh, according to that fleshly law, set their minds on the things of the flesh. They're concentrating on that. But those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. Now here's a fact, and grab it. The only thing that can remove sin permanently, the only thing that can get rid of sin, the only thing that can pay for sin is the blood of Christ. You can say that any way you want to, but that's a fact. No sin has ever been done away with except by the blood of Christ. Hindus can't do it. The Muslims can't do it. The Mormons can't do it. The Jehovah's Witnesses can't do it. It can't be done except by the blood of Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John eleven fourteen six. 14, And then in the book of Revelation, chapter 1, verse 5, unto him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Lord, how else can we be washed from our sins? There is no other way. Jesus Christ is the way. He is the only way. I was amazed years ago. I was watching a television program out of Savannah. I live near Savannah. It was a group of denominational preachers, about five of them on Sunday afternoon. They had a great 
conference there and answered questions. And one of the questions came up and said, is it possible to be saved without the blood of Christ? Now, you might not know Savannah, but it's a pretty unique place for people who don't believe that. Their religion won't let them believe that. These five Christian denominational preachers agreed, well, yes, if a person is truly, truly committed to God and he believes the Old Testament and he follows God as best he can from the Old Testament, he's going to be saved. That was the popular thing to say. And if you don't believe that, you're not popular. But I'll tell you this, I'm not popular. Because he came as the only means of salvation. That's the way it was then, that's the way it is now. Cannot be, uh, cannot be any other way. For to be carnally minded is death. Not just been on sin, but been on the law. That's Sark's right there, flesh. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity with God, against God. It is not subject to the law of God, neither can it be. You know what he's saying? We are not perfect. In order for a person to be perfect under Moses' law, he has to be perfect. I should say in order for him to be saved under Moses' law... He has to be perfect. And we get the idea sometimes that salvation is so easy, so easy to understand. I met a man years ago named Roger. Roger had written a book. He lived in uh, Oklahoma. And he called me. He said, I saw your name, and I wonder if you'll make a book for me. I talked to him about his beliefs. He said, I have so many friends, hundreds of friends I work with, that don't understand the need for baptism. And I've written a book on baptism that anybody can understand. And I want you to do it for me and I'll sell it or give it away. I'll come over there and pick it up. You'll have no obligation after you get it off the press. I did it for him. Roger and his wife met me in Nashville, went to the printer, Loaded his books up. He was tickled to death. It was a pretty book. He said everything he wanted to say. I was going out to see Mac Lyon later, going down Route 66. Went through Tulsa. I said, I think I'll just call Roger up. And I did. He said, come on by the house. I want to talk to you. Went by. And he said, you know, James, I, that book didn't do anything I wanted it to do. He said, my friends, every one of them, they'd look at it and say, yeah, 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 but. Yeah, I read, yeah, but. He said, I want another book, and I'm going to call it, yeah, but. I don't know if he did that or not. But it's so strange. A man in Walker County had a book that would convert anybody to Christ. Anybody that reads this will be converted to Christ whether he knows he's going to be or not. He can't miss it. Will you do it for me? I said, no. I mean, I did it nicely. I said, no. There are people who are totally turned off by this, and a Calvinist cannot, underline that, he cannot accept baptism for the remission of sins. He cannot. 
It violates every principle of John Calvin. Cannot be. Because a, a true Calvinist cannot do anything to accept God's grace. God has to land on him and beat him to death and bring him into salvation. That's it. I'm exaggerating, of course, but that's how it is. Now let's look at Romans 8 8. This is interesting. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you're not in the flesh, but in the spirit. What? Are you in the flesh? Well, uh, I think I am. Paul said, no, you're not either. What you talking about, Paul? I mean, you're not under the law. You're not serving a fleshly law. See, all these people were in the flesh. Paul was in the flesh, but he was not in the flesh as he speaks of it. He was, he was, he was in the spirit. He was serving Jesus Christ in Christ's spirit, God's spirit, the Holy Spirit. He was serving him in that fashion. He was not in the flesh at all. If indeed the spirit of Christ dwells in you, that's how it has to be. If you are connected with Christ in that way, you're not in the flesh, you're in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he's not of his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. That is easy to understand. It's easy to misunderstand. But let's go to kindergarten Christianity. What is the purpose? What was the purpose of your baptism? Well, you say I was baptized into Christ. Yes, you were. Baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Yes, you were. And you came to be a part of that relationship. And that relationship came to be a part of you. That's just how it is. As many of you as are baptized into Christ have put on Christ. You've been united with Christ. You began to dwell with God. You began to dwell with the Holy Spirit. You began to dwell with Jesus Christ. That happens. That type of thing happens. And they began to dwell with you. That type of thing happens in a covenant. When two parties enter into a covenant, they become part of each other. And Christianity is a covenant. And we become part of each other. Are you led by the works of the law or of the Spirit of Christ? I hope you answered that right. John six sixty three. it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words I speak to you are spirit and their life. How did Jesus, the Son of God, how did he combat Satan in the wilderness? Well, he said, Satan, you're commanding me to take these stones and make bread. I'll take one of them and clobber you. I'll leave a grease spot with you. I can do that because I'm the son of God. I can work this miracle and just leave a greasy spot here. No, he said, it is written. <laughs> the son of God is quoting the Bible to him. When he could have left him, I said, no, not even a greasy spot. I'd take one of these stones, hit you with it, and you'll go out of existence. He said, it is written. 
took him to a high place, said, jump down. Quoted from the Old Testament. God will command his angels. You'll not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus might have said, well, I'll tell you what. I'm going to make you jump down. You'll never hit the ground. You'll just keep going. But you know how he answered that? It is written. Oh, this is getting to be a long illustration here. I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world if you'll fall down and worship me. It is written. Why do we need more than that? Why do we need some magic? As a preacher told me one time, he said, we believe in fellowship and everybody. I've got a Pentecostal guy over here. He comes to my pulpit. I go to his. I said, you preach the same thing? Well, not exactly. Disagree on anything? Yes. This guy had the Holy Spirit leading him around. He told me. I said, what about your friend here, Pentecostal preacher? He led by the Spirit too? Yes, he is. Now, you're led by the Spirit, yes. And he's led by the Spirit, yes. And you disagree on what the Spirit says. He said, well, we don't preach the same thing. I said, why not? Is the Spirit inconsistent? The guy looked at me a minute, turned around, walked away. They have never thought of that. Never thought of that. How sad we are. We just do what we have been told and that's it. During the miraculous age, of course, God gave certain Christians certain spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 8, he gave them wisdom, knowledge, faith, healing, working of miracles, prophecy, discerning of spirits, speaking in tongues, interpretation of tongues. And then he told them those things were temporary. 1 Corinthians 13, 8, love never fails, but whether they be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether they be tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part, prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect has come, that which is in part shall be done away. I used that passage one time saying, we still have knowledge and we can still speak and we still have wisdom. Now that's some deep thinking. Because in those nine spiritual gifts, that wisdom, knowledge, and speech were all miraculous. That is like my being able to stand here and talk to you in Spanish, which I can't do. And since I can't do it, if I did it, it'd be miraculous. That is like my being able to tell you things not revealed in Scripture, revealed to God by me. Not to me. That's prophecy. I can't do that. He doesn't talk to me that way. He did that until the perfect came. Hmm. But when that which is perfect, that's Jesus Christ. No, it's not either. The word perfect there is neuter gender. When the perfect thing has come, that which is apart shall be done away. All those nine spiritual gifts were partial gifts. The healings, the revelations, and all these things were done in part. Nobody had all of them given to one person here, one person here, one person here. And they all came together to fit into one thing that we know as the 
Bible. The perfect revelation. The complete revelation. That which is in part should be done away. The spiritual gifts are gone. They left in the first century. Verse 11, but if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, and he does because here we are in Christ, he's in us, we're in him. The Godhead is in us, we're in them, or we're in the Godhead. But not in a miraculous way. Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Now, that is pretty elementary, but I don't see it any other way. Now, back to our relationship to the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. In verse 12, therefore, brethren, we're debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. We're not debtors to the law. For if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But there's another law. If you live by the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body. You will live. And as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. Are you led by the Spirit of God? Let's see. I, I haven't had a dove on my shoulder in a long time. You don't need a dove on your shoulder. No, I don't think I'm led by the Spirit of God. Then start reading his book. Let him lead you. Let him guide you. The dove is not coming to you. He didn't come to you in the first place. He's not coming to you anyway. The Bible can be on your lap and in your brain. Many years ago, I was on a mission in Cuba. And I've dealt with many, many people. We had a team of men there that were invited by one of our elders One of those men was a bit out in left field. He did have a bird sitting on his shoulder. He and I had a great discussion. But it came Sunday, and I was going to preach. This is near Guantanamo Bay. And he was asked to teach the Bible class. I didn't invite him to do that. But he came to me and said, Brother Andrews, i got a problem. This passage, it says, you know, as far as the east is from the west... He has removed our transgression from us. Where is that found? You know what I wanted to say? Let the Holy Spirit tell you. But I didn't. I said, I don't know, but it's in Psalms. Somewhere I'll find it for you. And I did. It's in Psalms 103, verse 12. But we're so, so mixed up. I saw him again the next year and he apologized to me. He said, you were right on some things you told me that I didn't believe. I thank God for that. Romans eight fifteen, For we did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. If children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Hmm. The Spirit bears himself, himself bears witness 
with our spirit that we're children of God. I wondered why I was concerned about my being a child of God because he hasn't talked to me lately. I need some self-assurance. Well, you need to get his book down and see what he has to say to you. If you've done that, what he commands there, you're a child of God. If you haven't, you're not. That's how he bears witness with our spirit. And if we're children, I love this, we're heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. How would you like to be a joint heir with a some of the descendants of Rockefeller. Well, physically, I'd kind of like that. I imagine their pockets are bulging. I lived in a South Georgia town. There was a little, there was a little town there. It was not as big as a minute, but it is said that a third of the Coca-Cola company lived in that town. How would you like to be part of that family? I'd like it. Joint heirs with that family? What about being a joint heir with Christ? That's better. Not just better, infinitely better. We cannot begin to imagine what that would be like. Wow. The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. If children, then heirs, heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ if indeed we suffer with him, that we may be glorified together. Verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. He didn't know the details. He just said it's going to be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly awaits the revealing of the sons of God. God's creation became corrupt through Adam. I didn't say his children were corrupt through Adam. I said his creation. I mean, the ground started giving thorns and thistles, all kind of problems. The woman started, was promised that she would have trouble in childbearing. It was a terrible kind of situation there because of the sin. But that's going to be changed. The creation... Verse 20 was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him, because of Jesus Christ, who subjected it in hope because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. There's something better coming, Paul says. And it's not going to be in Huntsville, Alabama. It's not even going to be in Big Cove. I know that surprises you, but it's not. It's going to be something greater than that. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit. This is just beginning, the beginning of our reward. Even we ourselves grown within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of the body. For we're saved in hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? The redemption of the body. Adam messed up his body. I don't know 
how he messed it up altogether, but he messed it up. His descendants are not what Adam was and Eve were at first. But there's going to be a redemption of that body. It's going to come out of the grave as a different kind of body. An eternal body. Somebody says, will we be able to sin in heaven? We will not want to sin in heaven. We won't have the body that wants to sin in heaven. Well, the angels sin. We won't be angels. We will be men and women with redeemed bodies. That will not die. Will not sin. And will enjoy singing. So if you don't like to sing, you will then. I know some folks that can't carry a tune in a bucket. I've got one friend that can't carry a tune in a pressure cooker. He's a gospel preacher, a good man. He said, James, I really hate to say this, but singing is so, so difficult for me. And he said, I just, I just don't enjoy it. I do sing and I do read the words, but I don't like it. Well, he, he's a monotone. He cannot hear the difference in one note and another. And he sings like that. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs do. I know he does because I'm sitting beside him. I said, thank you. Thank you for edifying me. I sing to you and you sing to me. That's what God says to do. But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance perseverance that word literally means it's the same as patience and it doesn't patience doesn't mean just wait 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 it means to wait under pressure it means you've got a big load on you but you're going to bear up under it so wait for it with perseverance well if God's going to treat me this way I'm not going to wait for him well you've just struck out right there because he said you wait anyway. Likewise, the Spirit also helps our weaknesses. For we do not know what we should pray for. But the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. There are certain things that we know. We know that Christ is necessary for salvation. We know to get into Christ we have to be baptized. We know where to meet on the first day of the week. But there are many things in our Christian lives that we don't know. And we pray about those things. And we pray that God will do certain things for us. We do not understand what's happening to us. And sometimes we're heavily loaded I don't know if there's ever been a time when you couldn't pray or not. I want to tell you something. I've been through that. There has been a time when I couldn't pray. I had friends. I asked them to pray for me. But the Spirit makes intercession for us. That means that He goes before the Father. On our behalf. Jesus Christ in Hebrews 7.25. Is said to uh, be our intercessor as well. 
Hebrews 9, 15, for this reason, he is also the mediator of a new covenant by means of death for the redemption of transgression under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Simply saying here that Jesus Christ is an intercessor. He takes our prayers and presents them to the Father, and he's a mediator. He works out a plan where the Father and I can meet. And he did that, of course, because he, he does that because he is a he gave his life for us. And he served. Now he who searches hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is. Because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. It really makes me sick to hear somebody say, well, I pray to the saints because they have more patience than God does. Than Jesus does. I pray to Mary because she's a mother. She's a woman. She understands me. I'm so sorry for someone like that. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be transformed to the image of his son. This is not the individuals he foreknew and predestined us. He had a plan. And he said those in that plan... He made the plan from the foundation of the world. Those in that plan are predestined to be conformed to the image of God, that he might be the firstborn among the brethren, moreover whom he predestined. These he also called, whom he called, he also justified, and whom he justified, these he glorified. What shall we say then? If God is with us, who can be against us? Have you ever disagreed with God? And be honest, I have. (laughs) I really have. And then I looked in the mirror and I said, you're foolish. You're foolish. You must accept what God has done and what he has said. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. He's in charge. Who is he condemned? Who condemns? It is Christ who died, risen, uh, and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. How can you argue with God? That's what he's saying. Why do you try to direct God? Why do you try to boss God around? You can't do that. I'm not going to read those six verses in Job, but Job had a prosecuting attorney. His name was Satan, and Satan brought charges against him, and Job wanted a lawyer. He wanted a good judge. He wanted a lawyer. He didn't have it. At least he didn't think he did. But we do. First John 2, my little children, these things I write unto you that you don't sin. Any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He's a propitiation for our sins. Not for ours only, but for all them that love his appearing. I think I married two verses right there, but you got the idea. When I go to God in prayer, I visualize the Father with the Son beside him, and I visualize the Son making intercession for me. 
Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, or peril, or sword. Uh -uh. For your sake we're killed all day long. We're counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. I'm persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities nor powers, nor things present nor things to come, nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Nobody can. One exception. I can separate me from God. You can separate you from God. No matter what I do to you, I can't separate you from God. You can't separate me. But you can separate you. I can separate me. Thank God for the church. Thank God for the brothers and sisters in Christ who stand beside us, who stand within us, within this group of Christians to encourage us. Let's bow for prayer. Father, thank you so much for the blessings we have in Christ. Thank you for the sacrifice he gave. Thank you for the covenant with him. Thank you for the blood that he shed, for the fact that we can be free from sin because of him. Thank you for hearing us. Bless us and bring us back for the next class. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Don't run in the hall. We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's Word. If you would like to continue your study of New Testament Christianity, please send your name and address to World Bible School, West Huntsville Church of Christ, 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Or if you prefer, send your name and address by email to wbs at westhuntsville.org.